Blog Talk Radio. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the Husmo Black Forum. Here we do it bigger, we do it better, we do it longer, and out of necessity, we'll do it louder than anyone out here. So relax. Here's your host, Husmo Black. Welcome to the Hushmo Black Forum. You got me, Hushmo, drive this train this evening. It's June 6, 2020. Yeah, this year is getting away, y'all, already. Um, got a lot going on in the world today. I've kind of just tuned out for the day. You know how sometimes you just get. Uh, overwhelmed with all of the uh, craziness uh, that's going on. Uh, I've, uh, I'm sort of at that point uh, today. So I, uh, I just turned the news channels off and uh, I'm just kicking back. We're just, uh, <laughs> I don't even know where to start yeah. We got Marsh's protest. Remind me of the 60s. Remind me when I was coming up kicking. Back in the 50s and 60s and stuff. People in the street marching. For a brighter day. Hey, that's what it's it's come to, y'all. That is what it's come to. This George Floyd murder up in uh, Minnesota. Uh, that's got the uh, got the people riled up, yeah, and rightfully so. I mean, uh, something has to change, and uh, something has to change. Hopefully, we can uh, channel. energy, not all our energy, but channel enough of our energy come November 3rd and let's make a change in that of leadership and uh, <clears throat> see if we can affect change that way. Uh, that's one thing. We got to obviously do um, attack this problem on all fronts, yeah. On all fronts. Uh the pandemic, the coronavirus pandemic, still still on the show. And we're forced into the streets in the midst of it. Young folks of this millennial generation, you know, ain't no joke. I'm proud of them. I'm proud of them. They out there. Their lives in the middle of this pandemic, they are still out there in the street and I support them. I just hope and pray that uh, we come out on the other side of this thing without uh, too many people uh, getting affected by this uh, this virus. Here. It's uh, uh, one good thing, I think the summer months, maybe, I don't know, 
I think the summer months may uh, provide a uh, somewhat of a cover to heat. Uh, but, uh, yeah, our young folks out there, black and white, white, white folks out there, I'm proud of them, too. The ones that are out there sincerely uh, advocating uh, advocating change. They realize that uh, what Martin Luther King was talking about some 50 years ago, that injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. And injustice to anyone in this country is a threat to justice for everyone in the country. And these young kids this millennial generation, they understand that, and they're not uh, prepared to deal with it any longer. I mean, you can have a democracy in talking about uh, you got different laws for one set of your citizens, and we all equal uh, before the law. <laughs> you can't, you know, well, I, you know, I say it can't continue. Hell, it's been like this for 400 years. So, uh, uh but hopefully we're at a, this inflection point where uh, enough people uh, understand that uh, this thing is a real threat to our democracy. It's a real threat to our democracy, yeah. And I believe enough young people, and the guy in the White House is a threat to our uh, democracy, yeah. I don't care what you think of him. I don't care what uh, you think. That guy is a threat to our democracy in a big, big way. And maybe the most dangerous threat, him being the most powerful single person in the world. By virtue of the fact that he uh, controls uh, our military. Make him the single most dangerous, most powerful person in the world. And uh, this guy is threatening First of all, the guy's been uh, impeached. You know, so they, they've got to change that. When, when the president is impeached, that should, whether he's removed from office or not, his power should be uh, curtailed, in my mind. If I ran the world, <laughs> I, if the Hushmo ran the world, that uh, when a president is impeached, his power, his power would be curtailed until he got out of office, if he wasn't removed uh, during that process, that just don't make sense. This guy's angry. This guy's angry at the world. That's a bad way to be uh, when you're (laughs) sitting in the White House, y'all, charged with uh, protecting the freedom of uh, American that's a bad place to be. This guy got uh, some unmarked <laughs> militia troops marching on, on the city of Washington and threatening to use the military, the U.S. military, uh, and there, uh, the uh, the states over the governor's uh, head. That's dangerous, yeah. Huh? It's dangerous and it's crazy. I am so glad that. Uh, People are starting to push back. The military is starting to push back on that. 
I mean, the military is made up of American citizens, Joe, black and white. <laughs> and, and this guy is threatening to <laughs> to bring out the military <laughs> against American citizens, Joe. Uh-uh, this guy shouldn't be in the White House, Joe. I'm sorry. This guy should not be in the White House in June, uh, November 3rd. I'll be at the polls, Joe. I'll be there before. I'll be there as soon as I can early vote, as soon as whatever. I'll be there. I urge everybody uh, to get out and exercise your uh, your, uh, your right and duty uh, to vote. And uh, restore some kind of uh, Sign leadership because I'm really worried about this guy's mental stability. Uh, I'm worried about this guy's mental stability. I want to send my condolences out to uh, the Vaughn family in uh, Ohio. Um, lost a dear, 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 dear uh, a friend, a relative uh, uh, in the last uh, week or so. And uh, I'm still kind of heartbroken because I, I was not able to attend uh, the homegoing services uh, for her in Ohio. And uh, I just, uh, that's the second uh, homegoing that I was not able to uh, travel to Ohio to attend. My brother died about a month or so ago. I was not over, to, I hadn't got over that yet. Here, this other dear, dear person who was more like a sister to me, uh, transitioned and uh, was not able to go uh, to her uh, homegoing celebration. And uh, But I, I, I uh, just want to let the family know how much uh, of a special person she was uh, to me and uh, indeed uh, to countless other people. Uh, uh, hey, uh, uh, we're gonna we're gonna get too bogged down in this thing. Like I said, I'm just about burned out with this whole shenanigans. But uh, something that's kind of dangerous, show when you get uh, unidentified militia type folks walking around the streets of Washington, armed to the teeth. With no identification tags on, uh, America don't have any secret police, so I don't know what this is about, or who these people are uh, taking orders from. I, you know, that's the scary thing. Everybody, black, white, Republican, Democrat, Independent, whoever, should be worried about that possibility that the president could bring up these unidentified, like the. Uh, Gestapo that Hitler had surrounding him or whatever. I, you know, this is crazy, yo. This is crazy, crazy, crazy. Uh, y'all better wake up, pay attention. Anytime you got uh, people walking around in the streets with automatic weapons and uh, can't nobody identify them and they want to identify uh, themselves and they uh, got you uh, at bay with a guy. Hey, I, 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 I can't tell y'all what to do, but I got my gun. 
<laughs> I got my well, I'm a Marine too, y'all. As long as long as they're legal, illegal, I'm gonna have one. As long as everybody else is walking around in the streets with all these uh, weapons of war, uh, I'm not gonna be left out. I'm not gonna be left out because I'm gonna stand my ground too. I'm gonna stand my ground. Yeah. I ain't. Hey, we gonna we gonna line up some yeah, tonight. Uh, we can't we can't allow this to go unchecked, yeah. We cannot allow it to go unchecked. Here's an answer from Amazon. No, uh, uh some normal country, yeah, but uh, like I said, it's some George Floyd, a murder thing, came at a crazy time, and uh, the whole world is up in arms, yeah, in, uh, in London, yeah. These people demonstrating as far away as London. Oh, people are, you know. It's, uh, it's crazy. Mm-hmm. It's crazy. But, uh, Well, my garden is growing like crazy, yeah. My garden is growing like crazy. I don't know. Uh, Seems like, uh, well, we know that there is definitely a difference between the water that come out of the faucet and rainwater that come out just got <laughs> two different things. Uh, uh, well, yeah, you know the water you get out of your faucet. They they got all these additives, all these chemicals, <laughs> fluoride. What the? They got all kind of stuff in the water that come out of your faucet. Yeah, uh, fluorine. I don't know what all they got in there, but. It, that rainwater is here. When that rainwater hit the garden, that stuff jumped, looked like it jumped up two or three inches a day. Just so happened we've been getting, uh, we've been getting rain down here in the ATL for the last couple of nights. And uh, I, I looked, when I checked the garden out this morning, boy, that's unbelievable. No watermelons jumped up like crazy. I, I don't know. Hey, it's the first time in the house my brother has did a garden. 
I mean, I was born in I was born in the middle of a cotton field. I, I you know picked no cotton either. But, no, so I, I have not uh, a natural farmer, y'all. I, I just uh, I'm not. I now uh, I uh, I suppose it's in my uh, DNA. My great great granddaddy was a slave, yeah. So yeah, I. So yeah, I. It's in my DNA, no doubt. I, I ain't running away from that. I've got a call in, y'all. One eight 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 five eight eight three eight one four. Keep it light, y'all. Keep it light, cause I the hush way will get. Uh, I'm trying to get out of this funk that I'm in. Uh, you know, I'm in a bad, bad way. So keep it light if you're going to call in or want to talk to the Hushmo. Hey, I'll cut you off. This is my show. <laughs> but uh, I, I'm getting into this gardening thing. I mean, I'm a quick learner. Hey, that's one of the quick learner now, no doubt. You could out and play a little golf this week, y'all. The golf courses are open. Some of them are open here in Georgia. The city courses around Atlanta, in Atlanta, is not open yet. But uh, hopefully they'll be trying to open with the proper precautions and social distancing and the like. So we can hit the golf courses right, right outside of Atlanta and uh, get out, just to get out the house, y'all. I've been shut up for three months. Is it March, April, May? Yeah, I've still been in for three months, though. For the most part, and I've been running in and out to the drugstore and picking up stuff like that. And I'm coming right back in, you know, just to not socializing too much at all. Got a dear friend that uh, transitioned here in Atlanta. I'm going to try to go tomorrow to uh, pay my respects to his. Uh, Transition, and I think uh, his daughter's going to ship him back to Chicago. I think that's where he's from, and uh, she won't want to uh, give us a chance to uh, pay our last respect. And I think I'll do that uh, since it's close. And uh, uh, well, uh, yeah. Oh, that comes to three, y'all. I had three friends transitioning within the last two weeks. Wow, 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 wow. So, well, yeah, that was time and a place for everything. I watched a did. I want to comment on Al Sharpton, Reverend Al Sharpton, uh, eulogizing uh, uh, George Floyd, did a great job. Uh, Al, Al, Al can preach. <laughs> Al, Al, Al can preach, you yeah. Al, Al laid that uh, eulogy out. Myself, he, uh, he came from uh, 
the book of Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes in the Old Testament. Ecclesiastes got something for you, y'all. So it says there's a time and place for everything. <laughs> everything under the sun is a time and a place for it. Time to live and a time to die. A time for war and a time for peace. A time to be quiet, time to speak up your <laughs> a time to be quiet and a time to speak up. And uh I believe we're at one of those times uh, right now. <laughs> to speak up that is. And uh that's what the, our young folks are doing out there in the street, yeah. And so I'm gonna support them, yeah. I'm going to support them. They got my support. I I uh, had a dental appointment Friday. Of course, you know, the hospital go to the, <laughs> I utilize that VA for my medical care. Some of it. I'm 100% disabled. Some of it's disabled. So I use the VA for some of my medical care and I've been satisfied with it, but I don't use it for my whole uh, medical care because I, I've got, I've worked for 40 years, so i got <laughs> access to other, other medical uh, care uh, in adjacent uh, to uh, my VA uh, access, but uh, I use the VA for uh, my dental. Sure enough, and I've been I've been using the same dental at the VA for I don't know ten twelve ten to twelve years. The same dentist, which is I like that. Uh, so, but. The thing is, the VA has uh, uh, canceled all the in-house uh, dental uh, appointments right now because of this coronavirus thing. They canceled all that, so uh, they're doing teleconferencing. Now I got I got something like an abscess. <laughs> On the bottom of my uh, uh, mouth, it uh, hurt like hell. And uh, the dentist was telling me that, no, <laughs> did not take it. But so there's a problem with getting health care right now. Just a regular appointment, even at my main doctor outside of the VA, they are uh, curtailing all their appointments. You know, it's like the... Uh, the uh, uh, surgery and stuff that uh, they had uh, done away with. Uh, uh, At the regular hospital, only uh, only, uh, emergency has been uh, handled at a lot of the hospitals. Well, the VA is, Dennis, uh, I found out, after talking to my dentist Friday, he got, we did a, oh, I did. 
get on a conference call with him and we talk. And this guy's a talker. I mean, we talk with him in an hour. <laughs> I forget what he even called. <laughs> by, by the time I got through talking, by the time we got through talking, I mean, I forgot what we was even on the call for. I finally got him to sit, <laughs> to write out, to send out me some medicine, <laughs> some pain medicine. But, uh, so, but he was telling me that, yeah, the dentist practice, it, it's a little precarious because you got to be, uh, that dentist got to be in your mouth. <laughs> that dentist got to be all in your mouth digging and and uh, they don't know how safe it is yet. They don't know how that coronavirus is hovering around in the air. And uh, so they still, uh, they still, uh, investigating it. So the VA right now don't feel as though it's safe enough to be doing dental surgeries and all that stuff uh, right now unless it's really a dire, dire emergency. They are strapped. And he was telling me that they could, uh, if it's bad enough for me in my case, they could uh, uh, send me to a private dentist but he said even that private dentist office still has the same concerns, but because the private dentist, a lot of those people are looking for money in this in these trying times that uh, they'll uh, uh, kind of skip around some of the uh, uh, potential dangers and, and have you come in there and be digging around in your mouth. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I... But uh, I'm just gonna I'm gonna hold off here for a couple couple more months and see if I can. He sent me some antibiotics and uh, some pain stuff and yeah, uh, see if I I can make it through. Hell, I only got six teeth <laughs> left. But the main problem is I I think uh, the last few teeth that I have I have to get them extracted. And, uh, but I've got a plate. And the problem is getting that plate rebuilt right now is the main problem. And uh, so I, I, I'm going to hold out, you know. <laughs> hey, when you're my age, you're all kinds of little, all kinds of little nicks and pains start cropping up. There's nothing to do. I mean, there ain't nothing that I can't deal with for a couple of more months until we get a better idea of which way this thing is going. You think they'd be that closed in on some kind of a treatable uh, medicine for this darn virus, but they came up with nothing yet. Now, Fauci did say that this one company, Moderna, looked like they are uh, leading the way here in the States on a vaccine, and hopefully by the first of the year, by 2021, that they uh, have some kind of... Uh, Vaccine uh, almost ready. And uh, Moderna, y'all, check that uh, company out. Stay on top of this stuff, y'all. Y'all got to be active in uh, your own uh, health. That's that's one thing I do. when I, uh, I doctor can't just write me any kind of uh, prescription for any kind of medicine and stuff. I'm, I'm going to investigate it. Whatever goes in my body. I'm going to do some research on it. When I get a new prescription, y'all, I ain't taking nothing until I do due diligence uh, uh, myself on uh, <clears throat> the side effects. 
uh, you know, the the pros and cons of uh, the medicine. You know, yeah, because you know, a lot of time a doctor writes you uh, a prescription, not doing uh, all of your uh, underlying conditions that you already have, and uh, it's up to you. <laughs> it's up to you to uh, uh, do your own due diligence on uh, any kind of new prescription that uh, your doctor might uh, prescribe for you. Oh yeah, I. <laughs> Uh, we, uh, we're going to take a pause for the call. There you go. It's about uh, 7.30 in the ATL. Yeah. Hang on, we'll be right back. You got me, Hushmore. Advocated on your behalf, you're listening to the Hushmo Black Forum. Tell your friends about us, Saturdays, 7 p.m. to 10 p.m., right here in cyberspace. Iron set part three one fifty-seven. The next step there. See, here we go. Check these out. Four, five, six, seven, eight, nine wedge. Fun.
Ossoff in Georgia. I'm running. Hey, uh, welcome back. Welcome back to the Hashville Black Forum. Uh, just uh, picked up a little uh, tidbit of uh, information off Facebook. <laughs> there, are, there, are, there, there is some uh, legitimate uh, information that, uh, that that can be had on Facebook. Uh, um, Donald J. Trump now lives at 1600 Black Lives Matter Plaza, Northwest, Washington, (laughs) D.C. Hey, that's kind of funny because uh, the mayor of D.C. had her city workers paint Rename uh, Pennsylvania Avenue to Black Lives Matter Flatters in Northwest. Painted a big yellow and big black yellow block letters, Black Lives Matter in the middle of the street that can be letters big enough that uh, the name can be seen from space. Yeah. <laughs> now, obviously, the... Uh, Photo lenses and things that they're using a day on these telescopes <laughs> from outer space that's up in space are a lot power, more powerful than what they used to be. I think that Hubble thing can pick up a, a, a darn license plate from space. From space, but uh, yeah, the president live on Black Lives Matter Plaza, Northwest Washington D.C. sixteen hundred. That is too funny. I wonder if he's going to get all his letterhead changed. The address on his letterhead. Oh, right. well, I was going to be at taxpayer's expense if you do. Because remember, he live on the he live on the public trough, y'all. That president live on our dime. He got to change all that letterhead. I hope somebody has. Uh, ask him if uh, he's going to pay for the change uh, uh, of address on the letterhead itself or he's going to try to get the taxpayers to pay for it. Or is he going to donate that to uh, the Treasury and pay for it itself? I think I know the answer to that. I think I know the answer, y'all. Uh, Donald, Donald Trump, let me tell you, Donald Trump ain't, ain't paying for nothing. 
Donald Trump ain't paying for nothing. Donald Trump's still old construction workers from the darn 80s that did work for Donald Trump. They've been trying to collect their money for 20 years. Donald Trump ain't paying for nothing if he can help it. He had for his lawyers. That's why he go through so many of them. Yeah. Okay. And the only reason he paid them because them lawyers are real getting their money up front. <laughs> them lawyers charge you so much that you got to pay them up front. Shit. They ain't about to mess with them without getting their money up front. Uh, and I don't blame him. The guy's got a, got a track record, yeah. He's got a track record. You know, you know just... Uh, let nobody keep beating you. Well, you know the game. You ain't gonna let nobody just keep beating you when you know the game. I know I wouldn't. I mean, come on. between the haves and the have-nots. And the question is whether America will do it. There's nothing new about poverty. What is new is that we... Hey, uh, I, you know, I'll I pull this up. I'm sorry, I'll just let it bring it in here. But I, this, 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 this speech, I pulled this up some time ago. That's the last sermon that... Uh, the last sermon that uh, Martin Luther King gave in the church. Um, powerful, powerful uh, sermon. I'm going to let you hear a little of it. Since we're just kicking tonight, I'm going to let you hear some of it. Significant pulpit. 
And I do want to express my deep personal appreciation to Dean Sayer and all of the cathedral clergy for extending the invitation. It is always a rich and rewarding experience to take a, deep, a brief break from our day-to-day -day demands in the struggle for freedom and human dignity and discuss the issues involved in that struggle with concerned friends of goodwill all over our nation. And certainly it is always a deep and meaningful experience to be in a worship service. And so for many reasons, I'm happy to be here today. I would like to use as a subject from which to preach this morning, remaining awake through a great revolution. And the text for the morning is found in the book of Revelation. There are two passages there that I would like to quote in the 16th chapter of that book. Behold, I make all things new. Former things are passed away. I'm sure that most of you have read that arresting little story from the pen of Washington Irving entitled Rip Van Winkle. <clears throat> the one thing that we usually remember about the story is that Rip Van Winkle slept 20 years. But that is another point in that little story that is almost always completely overlooked. It was a sign in the end, from which Rip went up in the mountain for his long sleep. When Rip Van Winkle went up in the mountain, the sign had a picture of King George III of England. When he came down, Twenty years later, the sign had a picture of George Washington, the first president of the United States. And Rip Van Winkle looked up at the picture of George Washington, but in looking at the picture, he was amazed. He was completely lost. He knew not who he was. And this reveals to us that the most striking thing about the story of Rip Van Winkle is not merely that Rip slept 20 years, but that he slept through a revolution while he was peacefully snoring up in the mountains. A revolution was taking place that at points would change the course of history. And Rip knew nothing about it. He was asleep. Yes, he slept 
through a revolution. One of the great liabilities of life is that all too many people find themselves living amid a great period of social change, and yet they fail to develop the new attitudes, the new mental responses that the new situation demands. They end up sleeping through a revolution. There can be no gain saying of the fact that a great revolution has taken place in the world today. In the sense, it is a triple revolution. That is a technological revolution with the impact of automation and cybernation. Then that is a revolution in weaponry with the emergence of atomic and nuclear weapons of warfare. Then that is a human rights revolution with the freedom explosion that has taken place all over the world. Yes, we do live in a period where changes are taking place. And that is still the voice crying through the vista of time, saying, Behold, I make all things new. Former things are passed away. Now, whenever anything new comes into history, it brings with it new challenges and new opportunities. And I would like to deal with the challenges that we face today as a result of this triple revolution that has taken place in the world today. First, we are challenged to develop a world perspective. No individual can live alone. No nation can live alone. And anyone who feels that he can live alone is sleeping through a revolution. The world in which we live is geographically one. The challenge that we face today is to make it one in terms of brotherhood. Now, it's true that the geographical oneness of this age has come to be into a large extent through modern man's scientific ingenuity. Modern man, through his scientific genius, has been able to dwarf distance and place time in chains. And our jet planes have compressed into minutes distances that once took weeks and even months. All of this tells us that our world is a neighborhood. Through our scientific and technological genius, we have made of this world a neighborhood, and yet, we have not had the ethical commitment to make of it a brotherhood. But somehow and in some way, we've got to do this. We must all learn to live together as brothers. Or we will all perish together as fools. 
We are tied together in the single garment of destiny, caught in an inescapable network of mutuality. Whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly. For some strange reason, I can never be what I ought to be until you are what you ought to be. And you can never be what you ought to be until I am what I ought to be. This is the way God's universe is made. This is the way it is structured. John Donne caught it years ago and placed it in graphic terms. No man is an island in time itself. Every man is a piece of the continent, a part of the main. And he goes on toward the end to say, any man's death diminishes me because I am involved in mankind, and therefore never send to know for whom the bell tolls, it tolls for thee. We must see this, believe this, and live by it. If we are to remain awake through a great revolution. Secondly, we are challenged to eradicate the last vestiges of racial injustice from our nation. I must say this morning that racial injustice is still the black man's burden and the white man's shame. It is an unhappy truth that racism is a way of life the vast majority of white Americans, spoken and unspoken, acknowledged and denied, subtle, and sometimes not so subtle, the disease of racism permeates and poisons a whole body politic. And I can see nothing more urgent and for America to work passionately and unrelentingly to get rid of the disease of racism. Something positive must be done. Everyone must share in the guilt as individuals and as institutions. The government must certainly share the guilt. Individuals must share the guilt. Even the church must share the guilt. We must face the sad fact at 11 o'clock on Sunday morning when we stand to sing, In Christ there is no east nor west. We stand in the most segregated hour of America. The hour has come for everybody for all institutions of the public sector and the private sector to work to get rid of racism. Now, if we are to do it, we must honestly admit certain things and get rid of certain myths that have constantly been disseminated all over our nation. One is the myth of time. It is the notion that only time can solve the problem of racial injustice. 
And there are those who often sincerely say to the Negro and his allies in the white community, why don't you slow up? Stop pushing things so fast. Only time can solve the problem. And if you will just be nice and patient and continue to pray, in a hundred or two hundred years, the problem will work itself out. That is an answer to that myth. And it is a time is neutral. It can be used either constructively or destructively. And I'm sorry to say this morning that I'm absolutely convinced that the forces of ill will in our nation, the extreme rightness of our nation, the people on the wrong side, have used time much more effectively than the forces of goodwill. And it may well be that we will have to repent in this generation, not merely for the vitriolic words and the violent actions of the bad people, but for the appalling silence and indifference of the good people who sit around and say, wait on time. Somewhere we must come to see that human progress never rolls in on the wheels of inevitability. It comes through the tireless efforts and the persistent work of dedicated individuals who are willing to be co-workers with God. And without this hard work, Time itself becomes an ally of the primitive forces of social stagnation. So we must help time and realize that the time is always right to do right. Now that is another myth that still gets around. It is a kind of over-reliance on the bootstrap philosophy. And there are those who still feel that if the Negro is to rise out of poverty, if the Negro is to rise out of slum conditions, if he is to rise out of discrimination and segregation, he must do it all by himself. And so they say the Negro must lift himself by his own bootstraps. They never stop to realize that no other ethnic group has been a slave on American soil. The people who say this never stop to realize that the nation made the black man's color a stigma. But beyond this, they never stop to realize the debt that they owe a people who were kept in slavery 244 years. In 1863, the Negro was told that he was free as a result of the Emancipation Proclamation being signed by Abraham Lincoln. But he was not given any land to make that freedom meaningful. It was something like keeping a person in prison for a number of years and Suddenly, suddenly discovering that that person is not guilty of the crime for which he was convicted. And you just go up to him and say, now you're free. But you don't give him any bus fare to get to town. 
You don't give him any money to get some clothes to put on his back or to get on his feet again in life. Every code of jurisprudence would rise up against this. And yet this is the very thing that our nation did to the black man. It simply said, you're free. And it left him there penniless, illiterate, not knowing what to do. And the irony of it all is that at the same time that the nation failed to do anything for the black man, through an act of Congress, it was giving away millions of acres of land in the West and the Midwest, which meant that it was willing to undergird its white peasants from Europe with an economic floor. But not only did it give the land, it built land-grant colleges to teach them how to farm. Not only that, it provided county agents to further their expertise in farming. Not only that, as the years unfolded, it provided low interest rates so that they could mechanize our farms. And to this day, thousands of these very persons are receiving millions of dollars in federal subsidies every year not to farm. And these are so often the very people who tell Negroes that they must lift themselves by their own bootstraps. It's all right to tell a man to lift himself by his own bootstraps, but it is a cruel jest to say to a bootless man that he ought to lift himself by his own bootstraps. We must come to see that the roots of racism are very deep in our country. And there must be something positive and massive in order to get rid of all of the effects of racism and the tragedies of racial injustice. Now that is another thing closely related uh, to racism that I would like to mention as another challenge. We are challenged to rid our nation and the world of poverty. Like a monstrous octopus, Poverty spreads its nagging prehensile tentacles into hamlets and villages all over our world. Two-thirds of the peoples of the world go to bed hungry tonight. They are ill-housed, they are ill-nourished, they are shabbily clad. I've seen it in Latin America, I've seen it in Africa. I've seen this poverty in Asia. I remember some years ago, Mrs. King and I journeyed to that great country known as India. And I never will forget the experience. It was a marvelous experience to meet and talk with the great leaders of India, and to meet and talk with and speak to thousands and thousands of people all over that vast country. These experiences will remain dear to me as long as the cords of memory shall lengthen. But I say to you this morning, my friends, there were those depressing moments. How can one avoid being depressed when he sees with his own eyes 
evidences of millions of people going to bed hungry tonight. How can one avoid being depressed when he sees with his own eyes God's children sleeping on the sidewalks at night? In Bombay, more than a million people sleep on the sidewalks every night. In Calcutta, more than 600,000 sleep on the sidewalks every night. They have no beds to sleep in. They have no houses to go in. How can one avoid being depressed when he discovers that out of India's population of more than 500 million people some 480 million make an annual income of less than $90 a year. And most of them have never seen a doctor or a dentist. As I noticed these things, something within me cried out, can we in America stand idly by and not be concerned? And an answer came, oh no, because the destiny of the United States is tied up with the destiny of India and every other nation. And I started thinking of the fact that we spend in America millions of dollars a day to store surplus food. And I said to myself, I know where we can store that food free of charge in the wrinkled stomachs of the millions of God's children all over the world who go to bed hungry at night. And maybe we've spent far too much of our national budget establishing military bases around the world rather than bases of genuine concern and understanding. But not only do we see poverty abroad, I would remind you, and in our own nation, there are about 40 million people who are poverty-stricken, I have seen them here and there. I've seen them in the ghettos of the north. I've seen them in the rural areas of the south. I've seen them in Appalachia. I've just been in the process of touring many areas of our country. And I must confess that in some situations, I have literally found myself crying. I was in Marks, Mississippi the other day, which is in Quitman County, the poorest county in the United States. I tell you, I saw hundreds of little black boys and black girls walking the streets with no shoes to wear. I saw their mothers and their fathers trying to carry on a little Head Start program, but they had no money. The federal government hadn't funded them. They were trying to carry on, and they raised a little money here and there, trying to get a little food to feed the children, trying to teach them a little something. And I saw mothers and fathers who said to me, not only were they unemployed, but they didn't get any kind of income, no old age pension, no welfare check or anything. I said, how do you live? They said, well, we go around, go around to the neighbors and 
Ask them for a little something. When the berry season comes, we pick berries. When the rabbit season comes, we hunt and catch a few rabbits. And that's about it. I was in Newark and Harlem just this week. And I walked in to the homes of welfare mothers. I saw them in conditions, no, not with wall-to-wall carpet, but wall-to-wall rats and roaches. I stood in an apartment, and this welfare mother said to me, the landlord will not repair this place. I've been here two years. He had made a single repair. She pointed out her little boy who was a victim of lead poisoning. She pointed out the walls with all of the ceiling falling through. She showed me the holes where the rats came in. She said, night after night, we have to stay awake. Keep the rats and the roaches from getting to the children. I said, how much do you pay for this apartment? She said, $125. I looked and I thought and said to myself, it isn't worth $60. Poor people are forced to pay more for less. Living in conditions day in and day out where the whole area is constantly without being replenished, it becomes a kind of domestic colony. And the tragedy is so often these 40 million people are invisible because America is so affluent, so rich. Because our expressways carry us away from the ghetto, we don't see the poor. Jesus told a parable one day, and he reminded us that a man went to hell because he didn't see the poor. His name was Diabetes. He was a rich man. And there was a man by the name of Lazarus who was a poor man, but not only was he poor, he was sick. Sores were all over his body. He was so weak that he could hardly move. He managed to get to the gate of Dives every day, wanting just to have the crumbs that would fall from his table. Dives did nothing about it. Parable ends saying, Dives went to hell, and there was a thick gulf now between Lazarus and Dives. That is nothing in that parable which says that Dives went to hell because he was rich. Jesus never made a universal indictment against all wealth. It is true that one day a rich young ruler came to him, and he advised him to sell all. But in that instance, Jesus was prescribing individual surgery and not setting forth a universal diagnosis. And if you will look at that parable with all of its symbolism, you will remember that a conversation took place between heaven and hell, and on the other end of that long distance call between heaven and hell was Abraham in heaven, talking to Dives in hell. Now, Abraham was a very rich man. If you go back to the Old Testament, you see that he was the richest man of his day, so it was not 
a rich man in hell talking with a poor man in heaven. It was a little millionaire in hell talking with a multimillionaire in heaven. Dives didn't go to hell because he was rich. Dives didn't realize that his wealth was his opportunity. It was his opportunity to bridge the gulf that separated him from his brother Lazarus. Dives went to hell because he passed by Lazarus every day and he never really saw him. He went to hell because he allowed his brother to become invisible. Dives went to hell because he maximized the minimum and minimized the maximum. Indeed, Dives went to hell because he sought to be a conscientious objector in the war against poverty. This can happen to America, the richest nation in the world. There's nothing wrong with that. This is America's opportunity to help bridge the gulf between the haves and the have-nots. And the question is whether America will do it. There's nothing new about poverty. What is new is that we now have the techniques and the resources to get rid of poverty. But the real question is whether we have the will. In a few weeks, some of us are coming to Washington to see if the will is still alive or if it is alive in this nation. We're coming to Washington in a poor people's campaign. Yes, we're going to bring the tired, the poor, the huddled masses. We're going to bring those who have known long years of hurt and neglect. We're going to bring those who've come to feel that life is a long and desolate corridor with no exit sign. We're going to bring children and adults and old people, people who've never seen a doctor or a dentist in their lives. We're not coming to engage in any, in any histor, uh, histrionic gesture. We're not coming to tab Washington. We're coming to demand that the government will address itself to the problem of poverty. We read one day, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. But if a man doesn't have a job or an income, he has neither life nor liberty possibility for the pursuit of happiness. He merely exists. We're coming to ask America to be true to the huge promise Soren that it signed years ago. We're coming to engage in dramatic, nonviolent action to call attention to the gulf between promise and fulfillment to make the invisible visible. Why do we do it this way? We do it this way because it is our experience.
as the nation doesn't move around questions of genuine equality for the poor and for black people until it is confronted massively, dramatically, in terms of direct action. Great documents are here to tell us something should be done. We met here some years ago in the White House Conference on Civil Rights, and we are with the same recommendations that we will be demanding in our campaign here, but nothing has been done. The President's Commission on Technology, Automation, and Economic Progress recommended these things some time ago. Nothing has been done. Even the urban coalition made up of mayors of most of the cities of our country, the leading businessmen have said that these things should be done. Nothing has been done. Kerner Commission came out with its report just a few days ago and then made specific recommendations. Nothing has been done. And I submit that nothing will be done until people of goodwill put their bodies and their souls in motion. And it will be the kind of soul force brought into being as a result of this confrontation that I believe will make the difference. Yes, it will be a poor people's campaign. This is the question facing America. Ultimately, a great nation is a compassionate nation. America has not met its obligations and its responsibilities to the poor. One day, we will have to stand before the God of history, and we will talk in terms of things we've done. Yes, we will be able to say, we build gargantuan bridges to span the seas. We build gigantic buildings to kiss the sky. Yes, we made our submarines to penetrate oceanic depths. We brought, brought into being many other things with our scientific and technological power. It seems that I can hear the God of history saying, that was not enough. But I was hungry, and ye fed me not. I was naked, and ye clothed me not. I was devoid of a decent sanitary house to live in, and ye provided no shelter for me. And consequently, you cannot enter the kingdom of greatness. If ye do it unto the least of these, my brethren, ye do it unto me. That's the question facing America today. And I want to say one other challenge that we face must find an alternative to war and bloodshed. Anyone who feels, and there are still a lot of people who feel that way, that war can solve the social problems facing mankind, is sleeping through a revolution. President Kennedy said on one occasion, mankind must put an end to war a war will put an end to mankind. The world must hear this. 
I pray God that America will hear this before it is too late, because today we are fighting a war. I'm convinced that it is one of the most unjust wars that has ever been fought in the history of the world. Our involvement in the war in Vietnam has torn up the, the Geneva Accord. It has strengthened the military industrial complex. It has strengthened the forces of reaction in our nation. It has put us against the self-determination of the vast majority of Vietnamese people and put us in the position of protecting a corrupt regime that is stacked against the poor. It has played havoc with our domestic destinies. This day we are spending $500,000 to kill every Viet Cong soldier. Every time we kill one, we spend about $500,000, while we spend only $53 a year for every person who characterizes this poverty-stricken and the so-called poverty program, which is not even a good skirmish against poverty. But not only that, it has put us in a position of appearing to the world as an arrogant nation. Here we are 10,000 miles away from home, fighting for the so-called freedom of the Vietnamese people when we've not even put our own house in order. And we force young black men and young white men to fight and kill in brutal solidarity. Yet when they come back home, they can't hardly live on the same block together. The judgment of God is upon us today. And we could go right down the line and see that something must be done, and something must be done quickly. We have alienated ourselves from other nations, so we end up morally and politically isolated in the world. There's not a single major ally of the United States of America that would dare send a troop to Vietnam, and so the only friends that we have now are a few quiet nations like Taiwan, Thailand, South Korea, and a few others. This is where we are. Mankind must put an end to war. A war will put an end to mankind. And the best way to start is to put an end to the war in Vietnam because if it continues, we will inevitably come to the point of confronting China, which could lead the whole world to nuclear annihilation. There's no longer the choice, my friends, between violence and nonviolence. It is either nonviolence or non-existence, and the alternative to disarmament the alternative to a greater suspension of nuclear tests, the alternative to strengthening the United Nations and thereby disarming the whole world, may well be a civilization plunged into the abyss of annihilation, and our earthly habitat will be transformed into an inferno that even the mind of Dante could not imagine. This is why I felt the need of raising my voice against that war, and working wherever I can to rouse the conscience of our nation on it. I remember so well when 
I first took a stand against the war in Vietnam. The critics took me on, and they had their say in the most negative and sometimes most vicious way. One day a newsman came to me and said, Dr. King, don't you think you're going to have to stop now opposing the war and move more in line with the administration's policy? As I understand it, it has hurt the budget of your organization, and people who once respect you have lost respect. People who once respected you have lost respect for you. Don't you feel that you really got to change your position? I looked at him, and I had to say, Sir, I'm sorry you don't know me. I'm not a consensus leader. I do not determine what is right and wrong by looking at the budget of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference or by taking a sort of gallop poll of the majority opinion. Ultimately, a genuine leader is not a such a for consensus, but a mold of consensus. On some positions, expedient a cowardice asks the question, is ex expedient? And then expediency comes along and asks the question, is it politic? Vanity asks the question, is it popular? And conscience asks the question, is it right? And there comes a time when one must take a position that is neither safe, nor politic, nor popular. But he must do it because conscience tells him it is right. And I believe today that that is a need for all people of goodwill to come with a massive act of conscience and say, in the words of the old Negro spiritual, we ain't going to study war no more. This is the challenge facing modern man. Let me close by saying we have difficult days ahead in the struggle for justice and peace. But I will not yield to a politic of despair. I'm going to maintain hope. As we come to Washington in this campaign, the cards are stacked against us. This time we will really confront a Goliath. God grant that we will be that David of truth set out against the Goliath of injustice, the Goliath of neglect, the Goliath of refusing to deal with the problems, and go on with a determination to make America the truly great America that it is called to be. I say to you that our goal is freedom, and I believe we're going to get there. Because however much she strays away from it, the goal of America is freedom. Abused and scorned though we may be as a people, our destiny is tied up in the destiny of America. Before the Pilgrim Fathers landed at Plymouth, we were here. For Jefferson etched across the pages of history, the majestic words of the Declaration of Independence, we were here. Before the beautiful words of the Star-Spangled Banner were written, we were here. For more than two centuries, our forebears labored here without wages. They made cotton king. 
And they built the homes of their masters in the midst of the most humiliating and oppressive conditions. And yet out of a bottomless vitality, they continued to grow and develop. If the inexpressible cruelties of slavery couldn't stop us, the opposition that we now face will surely fail. We're going to win our freedom because both the sacred heritage of our nation and the eternal will of the almighty God are embodied in our echoing demand. And so however dark it is, however deep the angry feelings are and the violent explosions are, I can still sing, we shall overcome. We shall overcome because the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice. We shall overcome because Carlisle is right. No lie can live forever. We shall overcome because William Cullen Bryant is right. Truth crushed earth will rise again. We shall overcome because James Russell Lowell is right, as we were singing earlier today. Truth forever on the scaffold, wrong forever on the throne, yet that scaffold sways the future. And behind the dim unknown standeth God within the shadow, keeping watch above his own. With this faith, we will be able to hew out of the mounting of despair the stone of hope. With this faith, we will be able to transform the jangling discords of our nation into a beautiful symphony of brotherhood. Thank God for John, who centuries ago out on a lonely, obscure island called Patmos, caught vision of the new Jerusalem descending out of heaven from God, who heard a voice saying, Behold, I make all things new. Former things have passed away. God grant that we will be participants in this newness and this magnificent development, if we will but do it, we will bring about a new day of justice and brotherhood and peace. And that day the morning stars will sing together, and the sons of God will shout for joy. God bless you. That was uh, the man himself, the Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. That was his last sermon uh, that he did. And uh, go online, you can pick it up on, on YouTube out there. But it's uh, I think it's so uh, relevant today. That that sermon is so relevant to uh, what is going on in the country today, yeah. Uh, that was some 60 years ago. I think it's so relevant today, it's crazy. Uh, talking about the parable of uh, diabetes, maximizing the minimum and minimizing the maximum. Yeah. That's heavy. <laughs> hey, y'all, uh, welcome to the Hushmore platform. You got me, Hushmore. Just, uh, trying to bring a little spirituality uh, to this uh, world we live in, sorely needed in these trying times, yeah. It is sorely needed in these 
trying times. And uh, we kind of just wanted to uh, share that with you. Yeah, we, uh, these are trying times, no doubt. Uh, wow. We got protests going all over the place. And the face of threats by the president of bringing out the military of all things to uh, suppress the peaceful protest. Yeah. Hey, uh, we, uh, let us take a quick break for y'all. Come back and finish this thing out. Y'all hang in there. You got me hushed, but we're going to take a quick one. Advocating on your behalf, you're listening to the Hushmo Black Forum. Tell your friends about us. Saturdays, 7 p.m. to 10 p.m. Right here in cyberspace.
Hey, uh, welcome back. Welcome back to the Hashmore platform. Uh, yes, sir, tonight, yeah. Back in the day, I can remember we used to live for the weekend. You remember that old song, Living for the Weekend? CDC developed within 10 days a test from the time the sequence was uh, uh, published. And that test is not a flawed test. It works perfectly. The coronavirus pandemic isn't the first time Redfield's been embroiled in a controversy during a national health crisis. In 1992, the height of the AIDS epidemic in America, the then army doctor and top AIDS researcher was involved in another scandal. Redfield presented findings from a study he was doing on a vaccine treatment for HIV at a prestigious AIDS conference. Dozens of interviews and internal documents obtained and reviewed by CNN reveal fellow researchers accused Redfield of scientific misconduct, claiming he oversold the data and cherry-picked the results. Multiple officials attempted to rerun his numbers, but failed to replicate the same results he had. An internal military memo calling for an investigation shows that Redfield continued to publicly tout the data, despite assurances in private meetings that he understood his past presentations to be an error, and that he would refrain from repeating that error. After a month-long investigation, the Army did not charge Redfield with scientific misconduct but the then lieutenant colonel was found in violation of army code for his relationship with a conservative AIDS organization run by evangelist Shepard Smith. Redfield served on the group's scientific advisory board. The army determined Smith's organization received information from Redfield and his lab to a degree that is inappropriate and that the group appeared to be an outlet for marketing Lieutenant Colonel Redfield's research. The allegations hung over Redfield until his retirement from the Army in 1996, years before ending up on the short list to become President Trump's CDC director. Thank you, Mr. President. Several former collaborators told CNN they did not think Redfield was a good fit for the job. Now, amidst the COVID pandemic, some CDC officials describe a deep frustration with Redfield, blaming him for the sidelining of the agency and not doing more to advocate on its behalf. One doctor who retired from the CDC in 2019 said that under Redfield, the agency had been handicapped and lamented that Redfield is not as visible as some of his predecessors. Quote, from the outside, we don't see him, we don't hear him. He often doesn't even come to the White House press conference. And when he does, it's usually as wallpaper, silent. So, Jake, some pretty harsh words there. And I do want to note that Redfield today actually this, I mean, this report here is when he was talking about, about testing, saying that all of those problems the director of uh, the CDC. in about five weeks. And he called that an accomplishment. This thing is, one Republican you know, I used to work. Back on him saying, well, I used to work at the CDC. And, uh, well, I was a contractor company that I was working for was Computer Science Corporation, and uh, we took your uh, Center for Disease Control uh, Networks, and uh, oh yeah, the high school's MIT, yeah, but uh, according to the CNN report, Dr. Redfield, the new uh, director of the CDC, has allowed the CDC to be uh, 
to become invisible in this pandemic. And uh, he had a questionable history during the outbreak of the uh, AIDS uh, epidemic back in the 1990s. And uh, I don't know, it seems like to me he was forced to resign from the uh, Army. He was some kind of research scientist for the Army there. And uh, this is troubling, you know. This thing is troubling because I've been trying to figure out where in the world, why is the CDC not out front on this coronavirus pandemic? And I'm starting to, it's starting to make sense that this guy's, that this report from CNN is, is correct. They need to get that guy out of there and quit. Well, like I said, ain't nothing going to happen, y'all. We just got to make it through the next six months. We got to stay prayed up, y'all. <laughs> we got to stay prayed up for the next six months and uh, get that guy out of the White House and uh, a lot of these other underlying uh, uh, problems will go away, y'all. A lot of these other underlying problems will go away. Yeah, this is this is this is so scary. Yeah. This is so troubling, huh? This one guy took over the White House and has dismantled our government to this extent that people sit by and allowed it to happen. People have sit by and allowed this to happen. I you know, I still can't get my fingers around it. I still can't get uh, a clear understanding of how it happened. But I'm starting to figure this thing out, yeah. You know, that's what we do out here on the high school platform. We try to make sense out of things that uh, just don't make no sense, you know. I'm always by the way to do it bigger, to do it better, to do it longer. And our necessity sometimes we'll do it louder. Than anybody out there on blog talk, uh, yeah, we advocate out here for social justice on behalf of Americans of African descent, and right now we need it. We need all the advocacy we got, y'all. And we don't do it because we don't love everybody. We do love everybody. It's by extension that uh, we advocate for that uh, community, but. Uh, Justice is uh, sorely needed here. Equal justice in this country right now. Uh, we'll pull down that uh, sermon by Martin Luther King Jr. That was last sermon. Uh, it's on, on the internet. Just Google it. Go to YouTube and Google it. It's powerful, yeah. It's so apropos for uh, today's time. It's what uh, Reverend Sharpton was talking about when he was quoting from uh, Ecclesiastes about a time and a place yeah, for everything under the sun. For everything under the sun, there is a time and a place.
this is a time to speak up, to get involved with what's going on here uh, in our nation. This is your country as much as it is anybody else. This is your country as much as it is anybody else is this side of uh, Native Americans. That is. Yeah. Uh, I know my life go back to eight generations. Uh, I, I'm of African descent, but I'm an American. Oh, I'm, I'm an American of African descent, no doubt. That's what I am. My DNA goes right back to uh, the Yoruba folks in Nigeria, yeah. Hell, we've been in that DNA been in this country 250 years. <laughs> hey, hey, I was here before the old Columbus, yeah, damn near. Hey, <laughs> did Columbus ever make it to North America? I don't think he ever made it to North America anyway. But, uh, yeah, yeah. Get involved. <clears throat> Stay involved. Thank you, Ellen. Judge Frankie Beverly is very ill. Say a prayer for him, please. Mm-hmm. I send my prayers out to Frankie Beverly, one of my favorite musicians. Mm-hmm.
Mm-hmm. I don't know, you know, so these uh, unemployment numbers came out. Uh, <clears throat> but uh, I don't know. Somebody said the number was for In fact, I I can just see the way the world these numbers are right. Because people have to go back to work because all the soil is still closed. Where are they getting these numbers from? Yeah, another dear friend of mine. uh, So, this guy I went to elementary, junior high, high school with uh, in Ohio. Another homegrown that I probably would, under normal circumstances, I probably would have went to Ohio for three funerals in a row. My brother, my Play sister and uh, a friend of mine. But they would have it. Right. 
I don't know. Hopefully they'll have some kind of cure. Some kind of medicine at least to uh, suppress the virus in another few months. Uh, I only got two. I, the first impression is kind of dumb, but I like it. This, this is my impression. You ready? This is my impression of the founding fathers of America when the Constitution was being written. You ready? Here it goes. Hurry up and finish that Constitution, nigger. I'm trying to get some sleep. All right, the next one. The next one's a little harder. I want to see if you can guess who it is I'm doing an impression of. All right, let me get in the character. You got to guess who it is, though. <clears throat> okay, here it goes. Uh, duh, hey, duh, if you do anything wrong in your life, duh, and I find out about it, I'm going to try to take everything away from you. And I don't care what I find out. It could be today, tomorrow, 15, 20 years from now. If I find out, you're fucking duh, finished. Who, who's that? That's you. <laughs> That's what the audience sounds like to me. That's why I don't be coming out doing comedy all the time, because y'all niggas is the worst motherfuckers I've ever tried to entertain <laughs> in my fucking life. Yeah, you should be all y'all. folks out there marching in the streets uh, 
on our behalf, yeah. Yeah, prayer for them. They, uh, they keep them safe. I, I pray that they uh, will uh, be safe out there in these streets. Got some evil forces uh, uh, that's trying to be uh, re- re- released against them. We're going to try to stand in the way of that. If we can, we all got to stand in the way of it. Stand up, speak up, speak out, remember. Time and a place, y'all, for everything under the sun. A time to be quiet. And a time to speak out. This is a time to speak out, yeah. Hey, y'all, that's going to do it for me. For Black Forum, y'all, until next week, we'll see y'all. Y'all be good. Ciao. Back next week. This is day 6, 7, 13. We'll be right back right here. Same place, same station, y'all. Y'all be good. We out of here. The Hushmo Black Forum, advocated on your behalf by covering news and events affecting the African-American community. Check us out at the Hushmo Black Forum www.blogtalkradio.com